Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Losing the Plot. I'm your host Leo Robertson and for every episode I have a conversation with a new person. They're often a writer, they don't have to be, they can be any kind of an artist really, um, but I will have enjoyed their work and so I want to talk to them and we talk about their work, we talk about life, we talk about anything and everything, we lose the plot together, hence the title of the show. We start, as always, with the latest news from Aphotic Realm. So Aphotic Realm now has its own Patreon page. Uh, and you can become a patron where as little as a dollar a month, you get access to Aphotic Realm's story archive. That's a whole bunch of digital stories that they uh, will make available to you through their website. You'll get early access to episodes of Losing the Plot to any uh, videos that they produce and other kind of multimedia material. You can vote on future magazines, uh, like the what's the theme going to be. You can also vote on anthology themes and you'll get a shout out in all future Aphotic Realm magazines and anthologies. These are collector items that will have your name in them for just a dollar a month. Should you wish to upgrade to $3 a month, you will get all of that plus digital downloads of all the books that Aphotic Realm puts out. That is such as uh, the Tales from the Realm. That's their. Uh, that was the anthology of best stories from year one. There's Grim Dark Grimoires Volume One. That's an anthology of grim dark stories edited by A. A. Medina. That's going to be a series, so you'll be able to get more of those, I'm assuming. And you will also get the latest anthology, which is an anthology of Appalachian horror edited by Bo Chapel. And that's the second piece of news that I have here. Uh, let me tell you about this anthology of Appalachian horror. The woods have many secrets, but rooting them has its consequences. Take a trip through America's backyard with eight strange and sinister tales of Appalachia. So once again, that's edited by Bo Chapel. It features stories uh, from eight different, uh, some established, some up and coming uh, horror authors. Do check that out. I wrote this thing. I hope Let's talk about it, yeah. Let's lose track. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Losing the plot podcast. Talking to Leo This episode's guest is Rob True. He's the author of Gospel of Aberration. It's a collection of short stories which is out now with Burning House Press. Uh, Rob and I read at the same event in London. Uh, it was the Open Pen Summer Party in 2017. I didn't get the chance to talk to him then, but I did get the chance to, to uh, hear him read. And uh, I followed his career since, and I saw that his book came out I bought it, I read it, I thought it was great, I thought I should recommend it to my listeners and chat to him. And uh, I do hope you'll check out the book. And I do hope you enjoy our chat, which starts now. Were you doing any readings this weekend? Uh, not not this weekend. Uh, weekend just gone was, uh, was a bit of a chill, really. Uh, did a we reading on... Um, Wednesday and uh, I read it on Thursday. The Thursday one was um, was the main event really. It was like it was the official launch in Brick Lane Bookshop. Mm -hmm. um, 
obviously Mickey Burdenhouse Press was uh, hosting, and Sean Preston from Open Pen um, also helped organise it and did the uh, did the Q and A with me. Mm-hmm. And that was good fun. That was really interesting. Um, but I also done a, also done a little unofficial friends and family job on the Wednesday before in a local, mm-hmm. and um, I, I loved it. That was smashing. I'll tell, I'll tell you what was good about that one, right? Mm-hmm. It weren't that it was friends and family. It was that it was like everyday people. They got no special interest in literature. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just in a like local sort of like working people's pub, you know. Normally got the football on and all that, and uh, they give us a back room. They give it didn't charge us or nothing. My sister knows them, and uh, she sorted it out. But it was just everyday people enjoying good old fashioned storytelling, and there was something special about that. You know what I mean? It was like you know such an ancient form of entertainment, isn't it? Hmm. You know, someone telling stories. But it was just that. I mean, we, you know, I've done about half an hour or so's reading, break in the middle for a piss and a pint. And everyone had the drink and they were sitting there spellbound while I read me stories. And it was lovely to see, you know, just ordinary people enjoying enjoying my uh, words. And then we all had a, had a booze up after. That's really cool. Um, yeah, were these stories? They were things that you were telling people before you wrote them down, right? From the book Gospel of Aberration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing is about that book, I wouldn't like to call it memoir or or um, autobiography or you know, it's it's sort of like I don't know if they call it auto fiction now, but it's 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 fictionalized, you know. Mm-hmm. It's some of the stories are taken straight directly from life, you know, as I remember it happening. Mm. Um, some of it is completely fictional, but based on life. And some of it's a bit of a mixture of both, you know. Um, but I'm never going to admit to what's what, you know. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, so it's a bit of a mixture, really. But, I mean, I call it fiction because even the stuff that's uh, – that, you know, I've written it as it happened. Mm-hmm. In my mind, it's written creatively and poetically and, you know, with a bit of style and swagger. And so to my mind, even that's sort of, even that's fictionalised, you know. Um, and also I sort of believe that if somebody witnesses some, you know, five people witness an event, they've all got a slightly different version of it anyway, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh but yeah, I mean, often the case in um, gospel aberration, often the more bizarre and far-fetched stuff is the is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> You've been doing readings for a long time now, right? Do you did you find them nerve-wracking at first? Do you still find them that way? You know what? I think the first reading I ever did was with you. Yeah. In uh, Jamboree. Yeah. I believe. I think it was either there or up in Nottingham. I can't remember, but it was around that time was the first one. Uh, do you remember when that was at Open Pen? Was that 2015 or 16 or? It was August 2017, I think. Oh, 17? Yeah. I'll get, I'll get me years muddled up, mate. But <laughs> yeah, so what's that in a couple of years ago nearly, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so that that's when I started doing readings. Um, funny enough... 
I couldn't I couldn't hardly read very well growing up. I'm dyslexic. Um, um, and when I'd done my first reading, I'd never read that out loud in my life in 40, 45 odd years or whatever it was by then. Wow. And I had, I had to uh, I had to learn to read out loud for that event. So I practiced in front of my cousin and my wife and a couple of my wife's uh, friends. Um, well, they're, they're my friends as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that was it. That was the first time I'd ever done it. I don't, I don't ever get nervous. I don't know why my missus says I've got no frontal lobe. Um, <laughs> but I don't ever get nervous about anything really. And speaking in front of a load of people doesn't phase me in the slightest. Whether or not that makes me do anything better or not is uh, in the eye of the beholder, really. But for me, it just makes it easier to do, I suppose. Mm-hmm. When when did you discover writing? Well, uh, I've always been a creative person, right? I've never been academic. So I left, I mean, I left school with no qualifications, which, you know, I was, I, was, uh, I was diagnosed with a mental illness in my mid-teens and um, went well off the rails. Um, I was scrappy at school, put in a remedial class in the juniors, learned to read and write, but struggled with it and left school with no qualifications. Um, but I was always interested in knowledge and had an aura of books, you know, and um, I've always loved stories. And um, when I was growing up, because of some of the stuff I was involved with, we there was always a few of us that were good storytellers. Mm. And um, my lifestyle was a mine, really, a mine of stories. You know, it was always someone getting beaten up or some nuts who had lost it or, you know, an elaborate escape from the police or some interesting thievery or whatever. And, they, you know, we, we used to brag and sit about telling our stories. And I think I, I, I was always a good verbal storyteller. I did attempt to write something in my 20s, and I've got no idea why I did. I can't really remember. At the time, I was on a lot of medication. Um, but I was quite ill back then. I was in and out of a mental hospital, and the... Apart from my dyslexia, which meant I had no understanding of punctuation or let alone spelling, so it, it was just unintelligible, and probably because of the because of the psychotic illness that was uh, quite bad at the time, the writing was completely schizophrenic. It was unreadable, so I gave up on that and never attempted it again for another twenty five odd years. When I was forty, I had sort of 10 years of people saying to me, you should write a book because, you know, I was always telling them stories down the pub or, you know, to various people. And um, I, I loved the idea of it, but obviously I couldn't write properly. So it, it wasn't really an option. And then one day I thought, I feel like, um, I feel like I'm chained by this, you know, and I suddenly became very determined to break free. So I started to write. Now, of course, I've never done. I've never done. A, I've never done a write, creative writing course. I've never gone to university. 
I never wrote much more than a paragraph at school, you know. Um, so it was a load of crap. Um, it, I think what it was, the content was good. It was creative, but I couldn't put it together into anything that would translate to a reader, if you understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's obviously a very different skill standing there telling stories in the pub and, and you know, writing literature is a very different matter altogether. Mm. Um, but I asked my wife, who's a primary school teacher, to uh, teach me how to use the mechanics of the language. And I was 40 years old then. And she started to teach me from a basic primary level. Took me a few years to get the hang of it. And then um, I started sending things off. I got published in Open Pen and Burning House Press and various other places and found that people actually liked what I was doing, which was a bit of a surprise at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of gone on from there. That's really cool. Um, you've given me a lot that I want to get into. I think, firstly, um, you mentioned this, you mentioned mental illness, you mentioned a lifestyle about where you were growing up. Did the lifestyle come before the mental illness diagnosis? Do you think that the mental illness has something to do with that? If you don't mind me asking. No, no, I don't mind at all, Leo. It, it definitely has something to do with it, but it was actually the other way around. Hmm. Um, I was, um, I mean, when I was 10 years old, I thought I was being filmed everywhere I went, which, I mean, now we are, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm talking about in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, the the filming was directed at me. I was being monitored, um, and I've got no idea why I thought that. Uh, They didn't have the technology at the time, and, you know, I thought everyone was in on it. I thought my parents were in on it, my grandparents at school, everybody, all the adults in my life were somehow in on it. And... uh, you know, looking back at that, it doesn't make any sense rationally, but I remember as a small child, I used to have visions. I used to see, uh, you know, like strange occurrences, like sometimes I see bubbles floating around the room or uh, monsters coming out the wall and all, all sorts of things, but I didn't understand what any of it meant, you know. Uh, I used to see, I used to see uh, pictures sort of coming to life from a page, and I used to put them face down with weights on top so they couldn't escape the page. Um, but when I was fifteen, I I, I was uh, getting quite ill from it. It was getting me down, you know. I was I, I knew I was very different from other people. I felt very disattached and disassociated, even to myself, let alone other people. Um, and it started to weigh me. Uh, and uh, I remember going to see a psychiatrist and they they uh, diagnosed me with a psychotic illness. I didn't find out till I was in my 20s that it was schizophrenia. Um but it's you know I've had it I've had it to varying degrees of severity. I've been quite lucky, I think. Um, they put me on medication when I was ten. They put me on medication again in my late teens and through my early twenties. But a lot of the lifestyle that I was talking about before was quite probably a mixture of things. Um, I was always uh, I was always a naughty boy. But aside from that, I was always trying to 
self-medicate and distract myself from whatever was going on in my head, mm-hmm. uh, whether that was getting up to no good or, you know, adventurous antics and capers or just taking as much drugs or alcohol, whatever it was to switch myself off, you know, mm. and eventually I found heroin, which did the job better than anything else. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, it was to do with that, but not the way you think it was the other way around. Uh, however, there was times when certain self-medicating did make it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Cocaine, for example, made it a lot worse. Heroin, finally, made it a lot better. I was, I was, uh, I, I was on heroin for for many years, and certainly when I came off it, I was better than when I got on it. And during the years I was on it, I was very functional, and I still, I still had the same madness, but. I was functional and I could uh, manage it better. And it was the first time in my life that I had peace in my mind, you know, mm. the, it was like the, you know, the voices were switched off and the, you know, I could cope with the visions and all the strangeness. So I could manage things, you know, it's quite successful at whatever wrongdoings I was involved in. Mm. So how, how long have you been off heroin? Um, I think I got I got off it just before the millennium, hmm. so that'd be nineteen years now. All right, okay. And what has helped? What has helped manage the schizophrenia since then? Well, I've for whatever reason I've been a lot better at managing it. Um, but in all honesty, there's been times when. Uh, I've resorted to other opioids, uh, you know, prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've used those as a, to help me out of a few dark spots a few times. Obviously, very wary of the addiction because, you know, very aware of getting dragged back into that lifestyle. Um but I've just been a lot, lot more well and more functional. That's not to say that I haven't had this, you know, delusions or hallucinations or whatever. I, I, on and off, I, I quite regularly have voices and visions. Um, but I think it's more about how I manage them, you know, um, and my day-to-day life. Mm. So when I'm ill, it, it's not so much that I have more of this stuff going on, it's that I can't manage it well. I get I get more deluded by it and more uh, detached from reality, let's say, and um, le- less functional in my day-to-day life, hmm. which has happened again recently in the last five years. It actually started to get downhill again, um, and I'm back on I'm back in treatment now. I've been put back on antipsychotic medication. And have to regularly see a psychiatrist, but you know, again, I'm managing it better than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. How do you? How does uh, writing help? Well, it's a funny thing because uh, I never got into writing to help. Um, I think I got into writing out of 
I don't know, you you might you might recognize this, right? But I don't know if it's the same for all creative people, but you know when when you're creative, yeah? Mm. I, 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 I spent, you know, I used to draw pictures at school, yeah, but I didn't go into further education. I spent years as a as a drug addict and a criminal. I spent 20 years in factories, warehouses, and building sites. Um and all that time I had this creativity bubbling inside me, but I wasn't sharing it with anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I went into writing as a, as a way of getting this creativity out, you know? And um, But having said that, it does seem to help. It, I think the way I see writing is very similar to how I see art. And to me, it's a kind of magic. It's like it's like a way of dragging uh, spectral ideas and dreams from other realities into this reality, and putting them down on a piece of paper or a laptop or a canvas or whatever you're doing, mm-hmm. and sharing them with other people, and you know, using symbols to relate these other worlds to other people and and the magic is that you're describing things that they can't see so that they can see them mm. and for whatever reason when you do that with um stuff from your life that's quite dark and and uh, difficult certainly for me it's, the magic involves almost turning them around into uh I don't know whether I'd say into something positive, but certainly it converts them from something that is a real weight into something that is like uh, definitely a magic. You know, De- you know, you're 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 turning them into stories. I mean, a lot of the stories in that book are quite dark, but if you if you read them, they're very funny. Mm-hmm. They're they're. You know, I mean, there's so much sadness in life and and difficulty. And my way of looking at it all is to laugh at it. <laughs> because often the darkness is quite absurd and ridiculous. And it, it all seems so funny, you know. And that's what I try to do in the stories. So, yeah, it definitely helps because it's like a conversion of some real darkness in, into, uh, into a humorous sort of storytelling. Yeah, I think that's a really astute way of putting it. Um, I think definitely, like writing of something, especially a piece of fiction, if you're intending somebody else to read it, is a fundamentally hopeful thing to do. It's it's a uh, it's a, at the very least an attempt at communicating something, and um, even stories, if they are about meaninglessness, have they're about passing on the meaning of that to someone else in some weird, contradictory way. So. Um, the meaning of meaninglessness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. Is that what you're doing? I think very much so. Um, you know, like as I was saying before, life is quite absurd and bizarre, and you know, we 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 we're as a people, we're very attached to our concrete realities, our ideology, our um, concepts of what reality is to us uh, and that includes like you know moral systems um uh taboos conventions what people perceive as normality 
and all the rest of it. Um, to my mind, none of this really exists. Um, there are, there's many realities. Mor morality is something that we make up as we go along. I mean, 30 years ago, wrong and right was very different from what it is today. Uh, you know, wrong and right in Britain is very different to what it is in uh, the Middle East or the Far East. Um, wrong and right is very different at my dinner table than it is for my next door neighbor's dinner table. And the same goes for normality. It's like, uh, it's very much like fashion, you know? Uh, look what he's wearing. He looks like an idiot. And then five years later, it's the height of fashion. <laughs> so, so all these concepts to me are just ridiculous. And I, I you know, I, I actually find it quite amusing watching humans. I, I very much feel like an alien. And I don't mean to sound arrogant when I say that because uh, we're all idiots, you know. <laughs> but me, me, you know, I'm the biggest idiot going. But what I mean is I often feel like disconnected. So I feel like an alien observer watching these ridiculous humans going about their everyday things that mean so much to them. And I couldn't just see that. It's utterly meaningless. And, and they're just making it up as they go along. Sometimes I'm, I feel like they're making it up to catch me out or trick me. And then I see that, no, they really do believe this. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's partly what the book's about as well, you know, because nothing really matters. Hmm. I think it, it was in your... There's a minor literature's interview with you, which I think is the is a transcript of the conversation you had with Sean of Open Pen at this event. Um, uh, it was actually a different interview, but okay. um, yeah, different questions and answers. Okay, because I saw there that you mentioned antipsychotics and that you didn't. You thought that your brain was on pause. Um, yes, that's right. It yeah. feels like they switch me off when they put me on that stuff. Hmm. Well, At the moment, mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be on a drug called Aripriprazole, which they told me is a lot better than the stuff that I was on when I was younger. I was on things like um, uh, Mogadon, Valium, Stelazine, Melaril, and Largactyl. But, all, I mean, Largactyl, Stelazine, and Merilil, Melaril, and um, Mogadon, I believe, are banned now. And... Um, if I'm right, Largactyl has got something like a 20-year life expectancy. Now, they never took me off that, which means that if I'd have carried on taking it as prescribed, I'd be a dead man now. Oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, so I don't regret years of heroin because that's what replaced it, and I survived that. And now they've put me on this aripriprazole and said, oh, it's not as bad as all that stuff. But they had a pharmacist in the room watching me, and I felt somewhat like a guinea pig. And when I took the stuff, again, it seems like he's just switching me off. Um, I feel a bit like um, this, this, this could be completely paranoid. I don't know, but I feel like they diagnose middle-class people with uh, um, uh, manic depression or whatever they call it now, bipolar. Mm -hmm. And... 
for some reason they you know they give them helpful medication to to uh, cope with their lives but i feel with the working class and this what they perceive as scumbags they say you're schizophrenic and switch you off um i argued this with them because i said i don't think i'm schizophrenic uh, they said why not i said i don't think i am i think i'm bipolar I, you know my illness comes and goes and heightens and lows in severity and you know sometimes it's really nice i feel buzzing for me mm-hmm. and they said no you're definitely schizophrenic i said why they said because that's the symptoms unfortunately one of the symptoms is denial so arguing against the <laughs> diagnosis is uh, you're a loser from the beginning uh, you know you can't really win that um um i i took this result for some time and then stopped taking it because although it stopped me from being delusional, it also switched off other parts of me, which I don't like. Um, but I have had a long-term prescription of tramadol for a severe shoulder injury, which occurred on a building site. And I've always been a bit careful with it because of, you know, history of addiction. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, what I've noticed is, like with the heroin, the tramadol makes me much better in my mind. And I thought, you know what? The antipsychotic drugs are addictive physically as well, and they're poisonous. So I just thought, well, why don't I just take the tramadol and stop worrying about it? I'm going to be addicted to something anyway. I've got a three-way choice here, tramadol, antipsychotic medication, or madness. So it ain't much of a choice, but I, I just started taking the tramadol every day. And, uh, yeah, I've got an opioid addiction, but I'm, I'm a lot better. And it, don't, it doesn't completely switch me off. I'm not taking head in my lap doses, mm-hmm. you know, just the maintenance level. And uh, it's not to say that I ain't crazy on it. It's just that I can cope with the crazy, you know. I can, I can function. Mm-hmm. Do you find uh do you find a kind of confusion perhaps between yourself and the madness or do you think it's part of you? Is that why it feels like being switched off or how would you explain that? Uh, yeah, quite possibly. There's a bit of both in that. I mean, you know, when I say switched off, what I mean is I can't think straight. I can't, uh, the, you know, it, it, um, it alters me in a way that I feel like parts of me are shut down. There's definitely a connection between um, my creative mind and some of my experiences of delusion or confusion, delirium, visions and voices. I mean, you know, if you take that obviously at an obvious face value level, that's what a lot what my stories are about. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to relate that to people. Uh, in my book, Gospel of Aberration, I'm trying to relate those experiences of horror and confusion and paranoia and delirium. Um, you know, a man coping with a psychotic illness and trying to navigate his way through life, whether that's at work, crime, family life, out with your mates, whatever it is, that that's what the book's largely about. And I've tried to write the stories through the eyes of the protagonist who who has a psychosis so so that I write these things as though they're really happening. 
So the reader has to go, hold on a minute, you know, because it's like, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these experiences are like a supernatural phenomenon. And that's how they present themselves to me when I experience them. It's as though these, you know, these shadow people or, you know, sometimes I get this alien being that fires signals into my mind and interrupts my thoughts um, or replaces them or steals them or puts other ones in. Uh, sometimes the TV's watching me, you know, the blank screen, or it's projecting things into my head on the back of uh, mindless daytime shit or whatever's going on. <laughs> you know? um, but whatever these experiences are, you know, they if somebody appears in the room that no one else can see, to me, that's real at the time, you know? And it, to me, that's like a ghost or a some kind of um, figure from another dimension who's after me or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's how I tried to write the stories as though, as though it is really happening, you know, because that's how you experience it. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of, I don't know, there, there's a dangerous idea. I, I feel like it's dangerous that somehow the, the madness is where the creativity lies, that perhaps if you shut it off, that, that that's you know that's where the stories come from or or it's one of the biggest inspirations i don't know if that's true uh, you know there there's a lot of uh, talk about this you know it's the same with um, when people talk about the drunk poet and mm-hmm. you know the alcohol is the alcohol to, uh, boosting the creativity uh, i know that when i get ill there's also a lot of positive uh, sides to it my creativity certainly goes up. You know, it's almost like I've pressed the boost button on it. Mm. Um, but that isn't necessarily to say that I'm not very creative without it because when I'm very well and very rational, I'm an extremely creative person all the time. I I, I don't think that I wouldn't be creative if I was well. I think I would still be creative. I just might express it differently. Um, but only in the same way that I would do many things differently when I'm well from when I'm ill. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, there's that, you know, there's all that stuff about, you know, where does the creative genius come from? Is it his madness and all that? And I mean, that's, you know, obviously I'm not saying I'm a genius or anyone else's, but what I mean is, that that inspiration and spark is it from that? I don't know. Maybe I know that when I'm well, I'm I'm very creative. But at the same time, my illness is a monster, and that monster can be terrible, but it can also have a lot of magic to it. When I'm ill, it feels like I've got supernatural powers sometimes, magical abilities, superior intelligence. Uh, and, and creativity is another one of these abilities that seems to shine from within me. Sometimes the stories come to me almost as if they're coming from somewhere else, you know? Mm-hmm. I can start with a sentence and it takes off and it's like something else is writing it through me. Almost like it's coming straight into me on a beam from heaven of golden light or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, you know, when I'm very logical, I'm I'm still very creative. So, 
And when you're writing these stories, and I won't ask you to comment on, you know, what, what's what's real and what's not, as you've expressed, but how does it make you reflect on your own life when you're writing them? Well, it's interesting because it's like, you know, as we were talking about earlier in the conversion, you know, that magical conversion of dark material into something funny or, you know, sharing stories. Yeah, it must it must force you to reflect back on things. Um, I'm I'm not a person who likes to put, and the moral of the story is in my stories mm. or my creativities. I don't feel like you know there's uh, necessarily a great lesson in them. The the predominant thing for me is that I find them entertaining. And I know that other people do as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I suppose my main thing is to entertain like a like a clown or something. But um, it, it, there's always something to learn from everything, isn't there? You know, and when you're doing these things, I probably subconsciously reflect on them and think about things I've done. I, 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 I never like to regret anything because, you know, everything you've ever done, good or bad, or whatever good or bad is, whether it exists or not, it, it all sort of leads you to where you are and, and, and makes you who you are. So if you start regretting stuff and thinking, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish that hadn't happened, and so on and so forth, it, with these bits missing, it's like, a, it's like a puzzle with pieces missing, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, those bits missing are bits of you missing. Mm-hmm. So I don't like to I don't like to look back and regret anything, but yeah, I mean, I guess I guess when you're writing stories, you, especially if you're basing them on uh, real life, you 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 heavily analyze things in minute detail, and then you analyze them again on the edit. <laughs> <laughs> I I think like you that uh, sometimes you just I get this really heavy feeling. And I don't really, it, it's like there's some big confusion inside of me and I don't really know what it is. And then maybe years later, I'll be able to write a story that explained what I felt. Um, yes. So yes. I, I, I wouldn't say that it, it, it corrects my behavior so much as just explains it to myself and articulates it hopefully for other people who don't, who haven't set aside the time to consider it and who have hopefully been going through the same thing. That's yeah. one part of it, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite analytical anyway. Uh, I, I'm one of those people where <laughs> I, I'm probably quite confusing to other people because I haven't got a very set ideology or or reality, which makes it very easy for me to argue and debate, um, even with very intelligent people, because uh, I've, I can I can take anything and pull it to part to pieces and analyze it inside out and upside down and uh, turn it into whatever I want like that. I noticed that a lot of people run into a wall and fall over and get up and run into the same wall and fall over and get up and run into the wall again. And a lot of people seem to do that through their lives. Um, I'm not like that. I'll run into the wall once and then think, okay, that didn't work. You know? (laughs) Um, do something different. I always think of it like an equation, you know? If you want three, you know, but you keep doing two add two, you're only ever going to get four. So you to change the answer, you've got to change the equation. Do you know what I mean? 
So I'm always analysing things like that. Um, whether, I, I don't know. I'm sure that must help in storytelling somehow because you've got an eye for the detail, you know? And you've got an eye for what, what needs to be there and what don't. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel more and more that it's most probably most writers' responsibility not to conclude on anything um, and to if anything in stories express the complexity of what's going on rather than make, you know, a persuasive argument towards something. Oh, 100%. I, I completely agree. And that's why I don't like and the moral of the story is. I, I also don't like um, any kind of moral judgment in, in creativity. I'm very much against, um, you know, whatever your political persuasions are or religious beliefs or anything like that, I'm very much against censorship or thought policing, whether that comes from a right wing or a left wing. I, I, I really don't like the so-called woke and politically correct uh, thought policing of art that seems to have come about in the last couple of years. Mm. To me, a story in its purity is whatever the story is. And you can't say, oh, you can't say this or you shouldn't do that because, you know, nobody's suggesting that anything in the story is right. You know, it's just that's people are complicated. People mm. are right, people are wrong, people are right and wrong, and everything in between. You know, and you know, to 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 say you can't mention certain things or do certain things within within art, I think is uh, the death of art. I mean, you you have to be able to take a story in any direction without any kind of moral overview because is you're not you're not writing a book of morals you're not writing something that says this is the way to behave mm-hmm. you know uh, you know it, it seems to have got very strange in modern times I, I, I know you see with pop stars and film stars they're always upheld as some sort of example of behaviour and taken a task over any kind of like uh misdeed or, or, you know, problems in, in their behaviour. In the old days, nobody gave a fuck. It was, you know, nobody cared. It was, uh, you know, oh, he's a rock and roll star, you know, that's how they are. You know, no, you know he's a film star, they get up to all sorts. Nobody judged. Nowadays, everyone's sort of held to account over the minutest detail of everything they do. Uh, mm. I've noticed that people apologise a lot nowadays. Um, I don't really understand all these things. Mm. Um, my, my, my natural response, if I'm questioned over anything, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's by religion or, or right wing or left wing or anything, my instant reaction is, fuck off. <laughs> you, do, you know what I mean? Yeah. Throw stones in glass houses, mate. Fuck off. I think it's quite clear that the the whole celebrity thing, I think it comes from just the now that everyone's kind of demand to be famous coupled with the fact that there can only be a handful of famous people, they kind of resentfully go, let me see if I can make him do something. Let me like yeah. flex my power over him by exactly. seeing if I can find some flaw in him, demonstrate that he's human. And you're like, yeah, you'll be able to do that if you want, but I don't know if that's really worth your time or if you should hold them to higher standard than you do anyone else. Um, yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. And I also think it's um, 
things have got very confusing now. I mean, there's a lot of mob rule, certainly with the rise of social media and, you know, there's a lot of moralistic uh, bandwagons, hmm. which are, you know, I find this quite strange because to me, there's a, there seems to be a lot of people that would identify with, um, you know, they, they might think they're rebels and, you know, they might say they're left wing and, and you know, think they're a bit revolutionary or whatever. But to me, they're all conformists. They, they, they just want to be a part of the moral majority. And there's no difference to me, to them, to the people 30, 40 years ago who were like might have been part of a right wing church society that, you know, were desperate to be on the moral majority and conform to what is the acceptable behavior. Mm-hmm. It's all the same thing. I, I don't care what direction it's coming from, you know. Um, yeah. To me, it's all, about, it's all about conforming to the moral majority, which I, I, I've got no interest in. I, I don't really care what people think. Um, it, does, it doesn't come into my radar as a, anything to really care about, you know? Um, yeah. I, I think, I think, you know, a man by his actions, you know, um, you know, you, you know, you, you, I take everyone as they come and you know, a man by their actions, not by, not by what they say. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's so complicated as well, because there's a lot of stuff nowadays, um, you know, like, like, you know, when you get into identity politics and religion and, and stuff like that, people, what happens is, is people's ideologies are so ingrained into who they are and their persona that um, it becomes, again, we come back to this idea of a concrete reality. It becomes who they are. And if you, if you present um, a very logical and factual argument to somebody who is a, I don't know, a right-wing fascist extremist, or uh, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be an extremist. It could be somebody left of centre or maybe religious or whatever it is, you know, or one particular brand of feminism and or against another. Whatever these things are, right, that is so ingrained in their identity that they, they can't possibly accept a rational argument that de- deconstructs what they believe, mm-hmm. um, which which is really bizarre to me because I prefer to be more fluid. You know, I I, I quite enjoy being proved wrong because then I've learned something new. You can't lose an argument because if you lose an argument, you found saying out, so you win. That's a really nice way to look at it. Tell me about. Uh, have you met other writers? Through your readings, through the whole, the whole thing of publishing, I have, and I'll tell you something, Leo. This is it's been a wonderful experience for me, mm-hmm. meeting other writers and other creative people. Um, you know, as I say, uh, from what I've told you about my past, as you can imagine, I, I've not been in that kind of world of, you know, creative people. Um, educated people and such. So it's really nice for me to share art and stories and to, you know, find out what, what other people were getting up to. And yeah, that's a really nice, that's been a really nice experience for me. And, and it, and it's been a very, um, a very, a very good learning experience. I've met some wonderful people, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm just to name just to name a few people that that um, I've met over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Gene Farmer. I don't know if you know a writer called Gene Farmer. Have you heard of him? Uh, I've seen him on Twitter promoting your stuff, but I don't know yeah. him personally. Yeah. So, so I've got a very good relationship with Gene Farmer, and he pretty much introduced me to all this kind of stuff. Uh, he started out lending me books and pointing me in the right direction of things to read. He was the first person I showed my stories to and he commented on them. Uh, that was really helpful. And then I met um, Mickey Angel and Sean Preston, who were the first people to publish me in print. Mm-hmm. And both of those people have been so supportive and helpful to me. I mean, obviously, Mickey published my book, but uh, uh, setting that aside... The uh, the interaction I've had with these people has been has been a wonderful development in my learning of writing and confidence in writing and you know it's it's just been it's just been fantastic for me uh, and to meet other writers you know I've been trying to get involved going to people's book launches and stuff like that and I just I just love that kind of magic you know bring bringing people together listening to stories reading other people's books not not necessarily famous people not necessarily commercial people but just people you know mm-hmm. and, and um, you know you find out so much from that I think I think it's great and you're working on a novel now is that right I am yes I am um, when I finished working on the uh, Gospel of Aberration with Miggy, I, uh, I I I felt like doing something different, and um, you know, obviously, I'd never written a book before, but I certainly never written a novel before. Um, I somebody suggested I apply for an arts council grant, mm-hmm. which I. I didn't completely ignore it, but I sort of thought, well, it's not really for me. I was thinking this is like, you know, these kind of things are for middle-class, highly educated people. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. I'm never going to get it. You know, they're not going to take any notice of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I pretty much forgot about it from there. But then, uh, a year later, I saw this, uh, um, thing on Twitter for, uh, it was a seminar, a free seminar for working class writers to show them how to apply for arts council grants. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Why not? Mm-hmm. So I went along and that was a bit of an eye opener. And I spoke to the girl after and she said, uh, here, ring this number. And she gave me the answer, the uh, a number for somebody in the arts council. And I spoke to them and I said, look, I'm interested in applying for a grant, but you know, I've never even, I've never got a job from a job interview, let alone filled out an application <laughs> form. I never, you know, I'm used to the kind of work where you just turn up and they give you a chance for a week, and if they're happy, you stay on. Um, so they said to me, "Well, we can we can uh, point you in a direction of some some people to help you." So they they uh, they led me to uh, an outfit called Spread the Word, which is set up to help. I believe it's for London writers to help them in their careers. And uh, there was a lady there called Ava Lewin who was really helpful and pretty much held my hand through the uh, um, process of uh, doing the application. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
uh, I, I mean, obviously it all came from me. It was, you know, my answers, but she helped me format it and, you know, all the rest of it. And I submitted them one of my short stories to show them as an example of the kind of thing that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I applied last year in the mid-November, I believe, was the deadline. And, you know, I put it to bed forgot about it. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to win that. But um, lo and behold, come January, I got an email and I won the bloody full amount. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. So I, I had a £10,000 grant from the Arts Council to write, to begin to write this novel. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I clocked it up in my mind. Uh, if you think of it like £150 a day for a five-day week, you got about two and a half, three months of writing there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, for me, this was such an opportunity. I, 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 um, I, yeah, I grabbed the ball by both horns, as they say. It coincided as well with me being signed off sick to schizophrenia, um, which was good timing because I was going to have to go to on benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, but... I, you know, I just took to it and made the most of it. I've knocked out about 20,000 words so far into my next book. And uh, I'm loving it. I'm really loving it. Hey, I want to find out how I can prolong this, you know, make it <laughs> keep going, you know what I mean? I'm loving it. And, I, you know, I do, I probably, you know, it's not, I'm not I'm not lazing about. I'm not chilling. I'm, I'm banging it out, you know. I'm getting into it and reading and writing and, Editing and you know I'm proper into it. I, I love it. I like you know I love I love this. This is like a when when I learn how to write. My, my wife taught me the mechanics of the language. It was like somebody opened the door for me. You know into a, a with this ability now to to um, share and express all this stuff that's going on in my mind. You know it's like a new lease of life for me. Um, I don't really find much, many things exciting, mm. but you know, for me, this is like a, this is a real boost. This is, um, it's a magic, you know? So I've, I've been getting into writing this novel and the words are flowing and I'm really into it, really into it. I'll tell you what I find funny, right? And this is no, I'm not casting aspersions on anybody else. Everybody's different, right? Mm. But I notice a lot of people, other writers, particularly on Twitter, and they say things like, oh, I hate editing, or oh, I hate the, you know, the first bit of writing it out before the editing, and oh, I hate staring at a blank page, and I don't like this, and this is just, I'm not like that at all, I fucking love all of it. <laughs> I love it, I love, I love the mad energy of writing the initial idea and just vomiting it all out on the page. And then I love clearing it up again and tidying it and editing and, you know, turning the magic into something that makes sense and, you know, turning the poetry into uh, a perfect flow of words that read well and bring the image into somebody else's mind in a good way, you know. Mm. I love all of it. (laughs) I love reading it back, my own work and thinking about it lit sitting it for a couple of days and coming back to it the whole thing 
can, can I ask how you met your wife? Yeah, I met my wife at school, um, and we never got together at school. We liked each other, but uh, she was a good girl from a good family, and I was a very naughty boy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that weren't going to work out. We went our own ways, and she went off to university, and I uh, disappeared down a black hole somewhere. <laughs> and then uh, many years later, when I climbed out of that black hole, just in time of the new millennium, I bumped into an old school pal, and I said, oh, how are you doing all the rest of it? Have you seen Eleanor? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, he said, I haven't seen her for a while, but I know where she lives and she's still got his phone number. And I rang her up and we went out for a date. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. We, we, we still held a torch for each other all those years, you know. Um, you know, no matter what else or who else we were involved with, it was, there was still that light inside for each other, which is a strange thing, but it was there, you know. And... Um, We've been together ever since. There's there's definitely a lot of love there, and she's brilliant. You know, I mean, she's a she's a very very strong woman. She's got a you know we've got an autistic son, and she's got a schizophrenic husband, and uh, you know she's she's the anchor. I wouldn't say we were uh, whatever normal is. I wouldn't say we we're a normal everyday trio, my little family. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she's solid gold, that woman. <laughs> well, thank you so much for for answering all my questions. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you very much. It's it's been fun, good, interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it. Okay, so that was Rob True. His book is Gospel of Aberration. It's out now with Burning House Press. Uh, I hope you will check out the book. Uh, I thought it was great. I hope you enjoyed our chat. And as always, if you are a reader, writer, listener, anyone with anything you want to tell me about the show, you can always get in touch with me using losingtheplotpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, But that's all from me for now. So until next time, bye bye.